The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Good day and welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, President and Dean of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and starting next summer, Kern County College of Law. And I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Stephen Wagner. Stephen, good day to you today. Good day to you, Mitch. Glad to join you. Well, I think, you know, not that everybody else who's listening to our show cares, but boy, are we glad to see some rain this weekend, aren't we? Did you get rain in the Monterey Peninsula? We are getting it now. We're going to get it now. It's supposed to clear up, and then I guess it's supposed to get a little damp for Thanksgiving. That's good. That must mean that it's heading our way because uh, the claim was that it was going to rain tonight. Well, I so think we'll you're going to get it. It's it's Good. it's raining here at KSCO, so that's a, excellent. That's, I think it's coming your direction. Is it raining uh, hard enough to put out fires? <laughs> okay, you're going to try to you're going to try to segue rain into our topic today. Really, well, yeah, really? Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, we are. We're going to talk about arson, aren't we? We are going to talk about arson today. This is the first time we've ever had this topic or anything really quite like it. Uh, we're we're fortunate to have Paul Bieber as our guest today. Paul's the founder and director of the Arson Research Project. He's an experienced criminal and forensic investigator. As a certified fire and explosion investigator, he consults with innocence projects, public defender offices, and other defense advocates on cases involving arson and fire investigation. He's a national speaker and does research on this area. He's recently published a great article in the West Virginia Law Review that details much of the research he's been doing for quite some time. We're just delighted to have Paul here. And since, Stephen, you're on the prosecution side and he's been on the investigative side for all these years, I suspect you guys are going to have lots to talk about. Yeah, I think so. And hopefully we can maintain objectivity. Paul, are you on or do you have a live mic right now? He's right here. I I do, Stephen, and thanks very much for having me. Yeah, hey, Paul. You know, it's possible that we've met in the past. I know it wasn't at the law school, but I do have a lot of friends in Redwood City. John D. is uh, someone I greatly admire through the public defenders or private defenders program. Uh, my father practiced in Redwood City. I think we may have met through the San Mateo County Sheriff's Department at one point, possibly. I think that's that's very possible, but it's good to be here with you now. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for, for agreeing to come on. I think it's a fascinating topic. I, I did read your white paper. It's very, very well done. 
it's a it's a fascinating topic, and I can't wait to get into it. Well, Stephen, I, I've known Paul now for quite some time. He actually had a Master of Legal Studies from Monterey College of Law, and we are very proud of him being one of the folks who decided that he didn't want to be a lawyer because he had an entire career. I don't want to steal his thunder, but he had this entire career in forensic science and arson investigation, knew that he wasn't going to take his law degree out into law, wanted to stay in this area, but wanted to study, the seriously study law, and our Master of Legal Studies degree gave him the opportunity to do that. So, so Paul, before I just rattle on about your life, tell us a little bit, how did you get into arson investigation? Well, you know, uh, I started as a, as a firefighter with uh, mostly with San Francisco Fire Department. That was my career. Uh, towards the end of my uh, tenure with San Francisco, I uh, attended the fire investigation curriculum through the state fire marshal's office. And one thing led to another, but years later, uh, I had been working as a, as a, a fire investigator for private companies, uh, investigating usually for insurance companies and attorneys, the origin and cause of fires for, uh, you know, for, for litigation. Uh, but then years later, I got involved in uh, what was my first uh, innocence claim, where I assisted very peripherally, I assisted the uh, Northern California Innocence Project on one of their cases where a, a man had been accused of arson, uh, had spent uh, decades in prison, and uh, claimed his innocence. And it gave me an opportunity to work on a case with a completely different perspective. And what I thought was an absolutely unique combination of circumstances. I thought this is the most bizarre, unlikely combination or, or fact pattern that you can imagine. This cannot happen very often. And I was very proud to, you know, be some to make some small contribution to what eventually became an exoneration, and he wow. was released. And so, for those who aren't lawyers, the exoneration means that this person was actually found after being convicted and being imprisoned for the crime of arson and/or any other things that went along with that incident. He was exonerated. I mean, he was determined to be not guilty, not just released. Determined to be not guilty, right? That's the use well, of the word his, exoneration. Well, in his particular, that is the, the definition of exoneration. In his particular case, uh, the federal judge that reviewed his habeas corpus petition. So habeas corpus means you, you, your lawyer uh, applies to the court to say, why are you holding the body, right? Exactly. Habeas corpus. Why are, you, why are you holding the body? What gives you the right to keep him? That's right. And the, <laughs> the federal magistrate in that case um, recognized that uh, no reasonable jury would have convicted um, George Soliotis, is the, is the person's name, would have convicted him uh, if the evidence was heard today. And the, the issue, there were many issues in the case, but the issue in this particular case was the, uh, were the forensic conclusions of the experts at the time and the methodologies and the processes that they used to draw specific conclusions that were then testified to in court in front of the jury and that the jury used to draw a conclusion that George Soliotis was guilty. But the federal magistrate, taking a fresh look at the forensic evidence and all the other evidence in the case, realized that errors were made and uh, conclusions were made by the experts that if the 
process was being conducted today, if the trial was being conducted today, no reasonable juror would have found him guilty. You know, Stephen, that's, well, that Steve, must Steve be... I was, yeah, yeah, was going to say, that must be like your worst nightmare, Stephen, when you have... You've done all the work on your side as a prosecutor, and then you watch the technical evidence essentially crumble from under your case. Sure. So let, let me, Paul, let me jump in and just on the Scoliotis case. Obviously, there were a number of issues that led to uh, the habeas petition being uh, granted. Uh, but with respect to the uh, origin and cause, what specifically uh, were the marquee issues in that case that might help our, our listeners kind of understand what may have? Because I'm assuming that the jury uh, was probably deprived of certain information as well as received information that they may may not uh, may not have been proper, am I right? Well, that's a really good question, Stephen. And the the key factors in the Soliotis case were uh, were a very common set of what's called in the business uh, arson indicators or fire indicators that implied the presence of an ignitable liquid. So this is, uh, some of your listeners are probably familiar with the uh, highly publicized case of uh, Todd Willingham in Texas. Uh, where fire investigators uh, examined the fire scene and saw specific types of burn damage and fire indicators, such as fire patterns on the floor that represented to the investigator a poor pattern. It looked to them like gasoline or some sort of ignitable liquid was poured on the floor and ignited and left some sort of signature pattern. Um, there were other indicators, melted aluminum, holes burned through the floor. These are all things that in the 80s and the 90s were thought to be strong indicators that an ignitable liquid was used. So, Paul, what I always remember when you first started telling about this area of work is that you know, some of the things are not in question. There was a fire. Okay, so that, that's, that's a given. And in many cases, the person who's charged was there. So, so that's not what's in question. It's the question is, was it an accidental fire or an intentional fire, right? And so what you're describing is how they were using these evidentiary uh, observations in a semi-scientific way to say this is what makes it a deliberate fire instead of of accidental fire, one being a crime, the other being an accident. Right? That's exactly right. And just to just to step back away from the particular cases, Todd Willingham or George Soliotis, to look at this more historically, um, since since 1989, there have been over 1,900 exonerations from all sorts of crimes across the United States. And your your listeners are probably aware that. Uh, being found being found factually innocent and exonerated is is always in the news. Amongst those 1,900 cases, about 40 of them were for the crime of arson. Now, if you look at those 40 cases, and that's what we've done at the Arson Research Project, we've looked at the first 33 of those 40 cases, and you simply categorize how the uh, original wrongful arson conviction occurred, you can put them into two broad categories. One is, there really was an arson. The crime of arson occurred. Unfortunately, for whatever reasons, the police and the prosecutor identified the wrong person. Okay. He was there, but he was not the person that did the crime. And that, through post-conviction investigation and litigation, they find that out. That's about one-third of the cases. 
in the other two-thirds of the cases, the material error was not that the wrong person was identified for committing the crime, but that an accidental or, or undetermined fire was misidentified as arson in the first place. So there was, and if that's the case, then there was no crime. Then there was no crime. And yeah, is, you know, Mitch and Paul, if I can jump in, I know we're going to get to the issue of negative corpus. And I, I we, can't wait. I, you know, I, I can't, can't wait, wait for that one either. I can't wait <laughs> to hear you talk about it. We're going to hold off on that one. That's got to be the, the bang at the end. <laughs> yeah, but what I did want to do, I just wanted to get this out because there's a quote. I mean, I think it goes as sort of an old sci science saying or saying in science, and that is, that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Yes, that's right. It's an, inter it's an interesting quote. I mean, one of my colleagues did recently try an arson case, and the negative corpus issue was very much front and center, and it was fascinating. Uh, and I, you know, I, I know we're going to be talking about it. Uh, well, it's interesting that you bring it up because uh, the the next point about that those two thirds of the cases that represent people being convicted of a crime that was never a crime to begin with. Uh, if you look at those, at that small data set, two-thirds of those 33 cases, and if you unpack the fact patterns, and this is what we've done at the Arson Research Project, we've tried to look at all of those cases that represent cases where, where accidental or undetermined fires were misidentified as arson and try to understand what the common factors were that led to the errors. Because I begin from the position that the fire investigators on the scene are not trying to make mistakes. On the contrary, they want to look at the evidence, they want to analyze it, and they want to draw reliable and accurate conclusions. However, there are a few processes or methodologies in fire investigation, some of them that have been rejected over time, such as the, the, the uh, types of evidence we were just talking about with Todd Willingham and George Soliotis. The burn patterns. The, in the, this. the poor patterns, the poor holes patterns. burned through the floor. Those have very little traction now amongst uh, modern fire investigators. But there are other equally unmeasured, unreliable or unscientific processes that have tended to replace those old fire arson indicators that unfortunately are present in all of these cases that we're talking about where people have been exonerated from situations that were never a crime in the first place. And it's the mission of the Arson Research Project to help educate fire investigators, defense attorneys, prosecutors, everyone, judges, anyone involved in this chain to understand the strengths, but also the limitations of fire investigation. And, and I bet that's not Of course, easy. we'll talk about negative yeah. corpus, which right. is one of the big ones. That, that's, that's kind of ambitious, isn't it? Because this isn't just jurisdictional. This is really across the science or the, the procedures are used across the whole country. Because I assume that arson investigation has historically had a pattern, some of those that are patterns that you now think are to be rejected. And when we come back after this, this break, we're going to go into that in more detail. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We have Paul Bieber, and we're talking about arson investigation and the Innocence Project. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Monterey.
Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law, established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick. I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Wagner. And our guest today is Paul Bieber. Paul Bieber is the founder and director of the Arson Research Project. And what we're learning about today is essentially the CSI of arson. I mean, Paul's not been on a TV show, but I suspect a lot of the work he's done is similar to what we see on television. And, and, and Paul, that always seems so scientific and following all of these special procedures. And a lot of your work has been addressing that very question, hasn't it? On the national standards and procedures that 
ought to be used, right? That, that's exactly right. And there, there was a very interesting report um, published by the National Academy of Sciences back in 2009 where they looked at a wide variety of forensic disciplines and tried to understand the strengths and the limitations of those disciplines. And it's called uh, 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 Moving uh, Forensic Science in America, A Path Forward. Um, and what, what they found was that there are two very important uh, qualities of expert testimony regarding any forensic discipline, whether it's fire investigation or fingerprint analysis. And, and you talk a lot in your article about the distinction of fingerprint analysis and DNA, because those are the things that really transformed this type of scientific investigation, right? Right, right. I try to make some comparisons and draw some parallels so that people can understand uh, just exactly how much an outlier fire investigation sometimes is. And what this report said, and it's very important in the field of forensic science, is that you have to consider how, how much of the experts' conclusions are based on human interpretation. And Stephen, you've talked about that as well, using witnesses and eyewitnesses, and how do you bring that into a trial setting, and how critical it is, and, and even the role of the lawyer on doing that effectively, right? Yeah, no, I think that's right, and I and I think what Paul's about to get into is the the need to have objective fact finding protocols in place, and I think that there's definitely uh, a potential for there being outside influences. I think that might be where you're going, also, Paul. I, certainly, your paper reaches that issue. Um, that's that, that's right, Stephen, and and it 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 starts from the from the from the topic of just how subjective a particular piece of uh, uh, evidence analysis is under the particular circumstances. So there are fires where the, the fire patterns and the burn damage are very clearly isolated. And under those circumstances, this is a relatively small fire or moderately sized fire where fire investigators can go in and do a very thorough and objective uh, examination and analysis of the evidence. And under those circumstances, the processes and the methodologies that are outlined in the current guides are completely capable of uh, providing reliable and accurate conclusions. But if you allow the same fire to burn just a few minutes longer, and now you have many items burning in the same room at the same time, developing burn patterns and damage throughout a room or a compartment that now begin to conflict with each other. Under those circumstances, if you send in five or six independent fire investigators and ask them to examine the same pieces of evidence using the same forensic methodologies, they will very often come back with completely different conclusions. And you cite a couple of studies. One I know that you did that did just that. You set up a controlled burn and you brought the actual pieces out and you paraded very senior fire investigators beside it and said, what caused this, what caused that, what caused that? And it, on your study, if I remember, it was only about 50-50 on deciding. And the one you start you talked about in your paper was only about 60-40, right? Well, well uh, the, 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 the one you're referring to, which was conducted by the Arson Research Project, had a different goal in mind. Right. However... Similar types of exercises and studies have been done to try to understand the accuracy 
with which fire investigators conduct their core competency. And that is, let's figure out where the fire started. And that's what I'm getting at. When a, when a fire is very small and is somewhat isolated, fire investigators are very good at figuring out where the fire started. However, when the fire burns for just a few minutes longer and it, it goes through some of the stages of fire development that are very common in a room fire, uh, the circumstances change. Um, in any forensic discipline, the error rate is largely subject to or largely determined by the amount of damage to the evidence. Mm -hmm. How badly damaged or degraded is the fingerprint? or the biological evidence, or the hair, whatever the evidence is. In fire investigation, it's a little bit unique in this way. What the fire investigator is examining and analyzing is the damage. It is the damage that becomes the evidence. Yeah, you know, Paul, I can make a comparison. I do a lot of vehicular homicide prosecutions, and I'm involved in collision reconstruction, and I think there's very direct parallels there. The In those cases, vehicular death cases, the vehicle itself is an item of evidence and the damage often ranges, but there's a lot to be told from the damage. That's, it, that's exactly right, Stephen. And, and also, as you know from that experience, you get to a point of damage where the information is now lost. So a little bit of damage gives you a lot of information. Well, a you know, yeah, you, you don't have an EDR for your arson investigations. Like What's that? That's the little box? A, a black box. <laughs> okay. Right? Although, you know, Paul, maybe, maybe in some cases you do. Maybe you can speak to that issue. Is there ever kind of, do you ever find that there's uh, electronic means by which you can determine causation? Well, first, we're, we're, we're kind of mixing two goals here. The first is to determine the area of origin of the fire. And right. the second is to determine within that area of origin what types of heat or ignition sources could have been responsible, what could have been the cause of the fire. And so... Yeah, no, I, sorry, I was actually inviting you to probably... That's a tough question. I, I was looking to see if there's something akin to an electronic data recorder that might be found in a commercial building or a residential property. And well, I, I sure, don't there, there, are se there are security cameras, security video cameras that often help inform really how a fire started. And, and uh, sometimes uh, when the fire investigators see the video afterwards, they're not pleasantly surprised how different it is from their interpretation of the fire scene evidence. So let's go, because I want to, let's, you now kind of transitioned into the determination. So you talked and said, you know, as a general rule, you know, on the objective review, if they follow the national standards and procedures in certain types of fire, there's a high degree of reliability of what the objective outcome is in determination. As the fires get, go through, past a certain point it gets harder but then something new happens that investigator isn't just doing an objective report they're asked to come into the court and be the in many cases the pivotal expert witness that then says to the jury based on all this this was a crime right and they sit there and i can just envision it they well-dressed, they've had decades of experience, they got a big badge on, and they point their finger and say, this was arson, and therefore, they must be guilty. 
right? And how do how does anybody ever contest that? Well, I think you're touching on a whole <laughs> lot of issues, Mitch. <laughs> yeah, you are. You go first, Paul, because I have a couple things. To sure, that. sure. So, so, so the first thing we talked just just to just to start at the beginning of that of that question. Um, one of the controversial issues in fire investigation is how do we know? How do we recognize when the when the amount of damage at a fire scene is so severe that our our accepted forensic methodologies no longer apply. And I'm telling you, that's a completely unanswered question. So that is that issue. Another thing you brought up is using the acceptable standards. Well, one of the problems in fire investigation is that there are no standards. Now, I say that um, in spite of the fact that there is a well-regarded guide to fire and explosion investigation that's published by the National Fire Protection Association, which gives very strong guidance in a lot of areas. However, fire investigators don't have to use it. Uh -huh. So an, another issue in fire investigation is a lack of enforceable standards that other forensic disciplines um, have overcome by accepting some you know, standards, but that their experts must follow. That is not the case in fire investigation. And that, 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 that's a problem that of course, fire investigation is a relatively young forensic discipline. It's growing. We'll see how that washes out over the next few years. And then, yeah, the, and if I could, yeah, certainly. I'm sorry, Paul. I, I just wanted to add that there will always be a so-called battle of the experts in these kind of cases when they go to trial. So the jury sits and measures credibility of the experts. I think we all know that. And they assign weight the testimony of the experts. And I think, Paul, you're reaching a really important issue on the potential problem of there not being universal standards, uh, because I think that adds to uh, some credibility problems sometimes for either side of the V, whether you're the prosecution's witness or a defense expert. I, I agree with you, Stephen. And I think if you look at the historical arc of other uh, forensic disciplines where they have tried to avoid um, being exposed to standards, where the forensic examiners in these different fields feel that a, a standard is going to tie their hands and stop them from doing their job. What they find once those standards are eventually accepted is that their credibility grows. Um, they they're accepted more by, by a wider variety of courts, and courts can, can then recognize whether the, examinate whether, the, whether the conclusions of the expert witness should be put in front of a jury and whether they are using reliable uh, methodologies and processes in the first place. And as you said, the jury, it's up to the jury to uh, measure the credibility of the, of the expert witness. But it's up to the judge to understand whether reliable methodologies were used in drawing the expert conclusion before that information is ever put in front of a jury. Yeah, that's right. And then pragmatically what happens is whatever information, let's say there are treatises or standards that the expert relies upon, that relates to the issue of foundation. And once again, an issue that the trier of fact, usually a jury, will decide upon. Uh, I think that's, that's a fascinating issue. Very fascinating. And, and then the third thing that you brought up, Mitch, was um, the fire investigator testifying uh, to the ultimate issue. 
to whether this was a crime or not, whether this was intentionally set or accidentally set. So wait a minute, I, I do have to share one of the, the, the examples you gave in your article, which was it was the, the equivalent of finding a fingerprint on the firearm, proving that it is that person's fingerprint, and then asking the investigator, based on that fingerprint, what was the intent of the person when they fired the gun? Yeah, yeah, which is a flagrant violation. Come on, can we all agree? Exactly. Yeah, Unfortunately, experts can't testify to mental state at crime time. We all know that. Right. We do all know that, except for those of us that don't. <laughs> and and well, I'm know, not. Paul, actually, great point. That's a good point. That's why very good motions in limine are required. Exactly. That's, and that, that, that's a fight that we're working on uh, nationally. All right. Wait a minute, Stephen. You got to tell you. So, what's a motion in limine? Oh, sounds like a motion. sounds like a yeah. seafood dish. Sorry, sorry, I, I, I moved into the war room too quickly there. That's sorry. right. Yeah, so pretrial motions that are aimed at blocking certain types of evidence from being admitted. Okay, right. And, and just yeah. just to repeat, uh, Mitch's you know, Mitch explained the the metaphor between fire investigation and fingerprints. But let me repeat that because it's important. Um, if if a fingerprint examiner got on the witness stand and said with expert certainty that they've examined the known print and the unknown print, and they know because of their experience and their education that the fingerprint that was lifted off the trigger of the gun belonged to the, to the defendant. Now, that's very reasonable testimony. That's based on an expert evaluation, and in every way, it, it meets the requirements of, of expert testimony. Now, if the next question from the prosecutor was, was that, was the, did the, now that we know it was the defend, defendant's finger who touched the, the trigger, did he touch it intentionally or accidentally? We all agree right. that would be outrageous. However, in fire investigation, in arson prosecutions... Hold that thought, because that's a perfect <laughs> oh, lead God. into the okay. next break. <laughs> You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law. We're talking about the science of arson investigation with Paul Bieber, the founder of the Arson Research Project. Don't go away. We will be right back. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. 
The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, along with my co-host Stephen Wagner. And our guest today is Paul Bieber, the founder and director of the Arson Research Project. And what we've been learning about today is how difficult it is to actually distinguish between accidental fires and arson fires in a discipline where what you're dealing with is the damage itself that makes that distinction. And, and Paul, until I started learning about this with you, I had, I had never really focused on that. And so before I interrupted you for the break, you were about to make a point about uh, the, the role of the investigator after you've made the scientific objective finding. The example you gave was, yes, it's a fingerprint. Then you went to the question of intentionality. How do you make the leap from a fingerprint to intentionality? And I assume you're about to tell us about how do you make that same leap in arson investigation data. Right, and, and, the, and the fact is you cannot make the leap. However, fire investigators, especially in other jurisdictions, are asked to do it all the time. They're asked, once they have uh, testified to the fire started in a certain location, the ignition source has been identified as X, Y, or Z. Now, the question from the prosecutor is often, is, was this an intentionally or accidentally set fire? And the fire investigator will often testify through what they will describe as within, with scientific certainty that a fire was intentionally started. And in doing so, the jury is exposed to expert testimony that seems to answer the most basic question that the jury is grappling with. 
Wasn't okay, it? hang on. Sounds like it's my turn to jump uh, in. Gee, <laughs> I can't Andy? imagine that you were going to jump in on that one. I could just hear the, the fingers drumming. <laughs> it almost sounds it almost sounds scripted. Sorry, but so I know where you're going, Paul, and I do get it. And, and it sounds like you're coming real close to making the assertion that this is a backdoor attempt by some prosecutors to actually elicit testimony on mental state of mens rea. And what I wanted to say is, and I do agree with you that the tactic is to bring it right up really to the brink sometimes, but I think we might be also talking a little bit about uh, negative corpus and ruling out other means by which the fire started and getting to an open flame type of exchange in terms of the evidence that's developed. And if there is an open flame, then the conclusions or the inferences could be made that it was the defendant that sparked or started the flame. Okay, so you've brought negative corpuses. So, so we've tantalized everyone with that so far. This is not Halloween, so negative corpus is not something you dressed up in a couple weeks ago. What is this, Paul? And well, how does okay. this come into play? This, this is a really interesting um, methodology that in the past had been used uh, quite liberally by fire investigators, and it is still being used, just not quite as common. Um, in the past, uh, it was common, it was acceptable for fire investigators to examine an area where they believe the fire started. And to, uh, as they correctly do, they, they will identify any potential heat or ignition sources uh, in order to understand which of those potential ignition sources was the true ignition source of a particular fire. And so, for instance, uh, if they determine that a fire started on a kitchen cabinet or a kitchen counter, uh, there may be a toaster in the area. There may be uh, the appliance cord leading to the toaster. And there may be the uh, electrical outlet that supplied the toaster. And so here's three separate electrical appliances. Any one of them, if they fail, could have started the fire that they're now investigating. So the correct process, the acceptable, currently acceptable process, is to examine all three of them. And based on the physical evidence in front of the examiner, the examiner can either include or exclude any of those potential heat or ignition sources as what started the fire. And hopefully they get down to one of those three that has forensic artifacts or evidence that are consistent with an electrical failure that started the fire. But what if they examine all three of them and they, are, and they exclude all three? Okay, so now you have a fire started on the countertop. You've looked at all the likely or traditional sources that could be a spark to start the fire, and they've all been ruled out. Yes. Okay. And so at that, at that point, uh, just a few years ago, it was completely acceptable for a fire investigator to say, well, since I don't know, since there are no heat or ignition sources that I have not been able to exclude, it must therefore have been the fire must have been ignited with an open flame, which is shop talk for a lighter or a match. And that, yes, some, but that was a malicious burning. Well, that's is the next that, step. So, the, so the first that, step I is to on. right. The first step is to draw a conclusion as to what the ignition source was through negative corpus. In other words, through a lack of evidence, negative corpus, uh, negative obviously, in the corpus, the body of evidence, a lack of evidence. 
and drawing the conclusion as to the ignition source, and then it's the next step. If there is no evidence of an accidental fire, then it must have been intentionally set. So it's kind of a two-step process. There are a lot of problems with the negative corpus methodology, uh, both in theory and in practice. But let me just say that amongst those uh, 30-some fire uh, uh, arson exonerations, of which two-thirds were based on uh, misidentifying accidental or undetermined fires as arson, the most common combination of factors that led to the original errors were, a fire, were fire investigators determining the wrong area of origin to begin with. Once you have the wrong area of origin, you are now looking in an area for an ignition source that cannot be there. By definition, yeah, so that, that, it was somewhere that, else. The, <laughs> Precisely. Yeah, that, that's the table, that sets the table for a, a garbage in, garbage out. Exactly right. However, the, the confidence that fire investigators have in their incorrect area of origin determination is in conflict with the underlying science that the conclusion is based on. But they believe they have the right area of origin. They are now looking in that area for any potential ignition sources. Finding none, they then say... Uh -huh. Using negative corpus. It's negative corpus. It is therefore a, a, a matro lighter. <laughs> and, and since it was the matro lighter, then it becomes, if you have that particular point of view or potential bias, the answer to your question is, was this accidental or intentional? Well, obviously it was intentional. And, and this or, gets, or, Paul, or, Paul, the, the logical inference. Is that it was intentional. It, that's correct. And, and, and logical inferences, and this really starts getting into the deep in the weeds of the, both the science and the, and the law. And, and, tact, and, and the art of advocacy. Exactly right. And I don't have any problem with juries making reasonable inferences. I have a problem with forensic examiners making reasonable inferences. So your it, belief is that they should provide the objective information. It's left to the jury to make that decision. Exactly right. And, and your experience has been, and what you've been working with through the Arson Research Project, is to change that pattern of, of behavior for those type of experts. And, and I should Mitch, say, yes, I'm sorry, go ahead, Stephen. Sorry, sorry, Mitch, I, I just want to jump in. At some point, uh, Paul, I was hoping you might share with us the background facts of a case that you cited in your paper. Uh, I didn't have a chance to track the footnote. It's a Georgia case. Is it Bryant? Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, th this was a, th th this is an example of something that at first glance, one might not think of this as a negative corpus conclusion. But in fact, it is. When, when one looks at, when one thinks of negative corpus as being the, the art of drawing expert conclusions in the absence of evidence, um, the Georgia case that we're going to talk about is a pretty good example. And in this particular case, uh, there was a, a fire in a mobile home where the uh, expert, where the state's expert uh, determined that there was, uh, he determined that this was an intentionally set fire. And that's how he testified. And one of the issues involved was that the, the, sus the defendant had a very clear alibi at the time of the fire. He was uh, known to be uh, an hour or so away from the area, of, from the mobile home that caught fire. And so his alibi was in conflict with the, uh, with the state's uh, theory of the case.
That's and, right. Okay, and there was detonation evidence, right, or alleged detonation. Right. Evidence. So, so the so the the state's fire investigator testified that a fire can be started with a ignition device that's used that 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 can be timed to start the fire hours or days after the device is set. Now that may very well be true, but the but they ex- didn't find well the expert went on to testify <laughs> that he knows how <laughs> detonation devices can or ignition devices can be designed to leave no evidence. So this is the ultimate negative corpus. It's the ultimate negative corpus. So his conclusion was the lack of evidence of any ignition device was the evidence that this suspect started the started the fire and he was convicted and he is currently incarcerated. Wow. Well, I can see why this is has had your interest for all the years that you've been doing this. Tell us a little more as we wrap up about the Arson Research Project. What are you doing next? And and where can people go online to find out more information about this? Well, more information about uh, the Arson Research Project is available on our website at uh, thearsonproject.org. Uh, what we have, uh, what we're working on right now is uh, in the Midwest. We're working on the first of its kind statewide uh, arson case review project where we're going to be examining the cases of over 100 uh, arson convictions strictly to get a better idea and confirm whether or not reliable, uh, tested methodologies were used in these convictions or possibly if less reliable, outdated, um, or exaggerated expert testimony was put in front of the jury. So you're going back historically, and you're, I assume you're looking through the, all the case files and all the evidence. I mean, that's a massive... How many did you say you're going to look at? It's going to be over 100. Wow. And, um, but, but the point I want to make on this is, and this is something that we've, we've said from the beginning, if we are to look at these cases, over 100 cases, and we find that in every case, reliable, uh, well-reasoned forensic methodologies and processes were used and reasonable conclusions and testimony came from that from those examinations that is a successful arson case review project because that shows us that there are agencies and jurisdictions that are using the guidelines properly and are are sending the right people to prison on the other hand there could be a needle in the haystack there could be somebody out there that is in prison um, and if the 40 arson exonerations to date are any indication, there are others out there where processes like negative corpus and misidentifying the area of origin and testifying to the ultimate issue became a problem. Well, Paul, thank you for sharing that with us. Stephen, always good to have you on. This is a great, great topic. Yeah, great paper, Paul, and, and you're great as a guest. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Paul, thanks for being here. This is Mitch Winnick telling you that you're, we're reminding you that you can hear an archive of today's program at voiceamerica.com or wagnerandwinnick.com. As we always suggest to you at the end of each show, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer.
SCO, Santa Cruz. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar, but have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give clients first awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepherd Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.